0: Covenant Life Fellowship, and for for more information about our church, and to stay up-to-date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. The text of study this morning is from Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, if you turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. And this is the Word of God. We need to honor it and hear it and receive it and take it into our hearts and into our lives and obey it. So if we read the Scriptures, please stand with me as we honor God's Word. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no... No one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by this many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he de- <clears throat> desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." Father, we're thankful for your precious word. We might read it and understand and hear what you have to say to us. And now we pray, Lord, that you would take your word and you would empower it, plant it into our hearts and minds, open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things from your law. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Over a year ago that Bill Heard was teaching at a men's breakfast and he made mention of a verse that was his aim of life. And I jotted that down, and uh, the verse has become an important one to me. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 9. That's before you from the ESV translation, but I'd like to quote it from the New King James. That's where I do my scripture memory, and it goes like this. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. This should be the aim of every single Christian, to be well-pleasing to our Lord. And one would think to be well-pleasing to him, you need to do his will. And his will is given to us in his holy scriptures, in his commandments. They, The commandments of God reveal God's will for us. So to please the Lord, to be well-pleasing in His sight, we as His people need to obey His commandments. Now I want to say just a few things about commandments before we look at several. First of all, every commandment in the Bible is not for you. Exodus 14:16 says, lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea. Well, that's not for you. That's a commandment given to Moses and Moses alone for one occasion alone. And so uh, it's truly a command, but not for us that we would obey. Also, you'd find in the Bible and Old Testament scriptures, some laws that were given to Israel as they sought to live as a nation under God as a theocracy. And those commandments are not for us. There's a ceremonial law, which is very important and uh, worthy of our study and points to Christ and teaches us all kinds of things. But uh, those have been fulfilled, and they're not for us. That's why, although there are very clear commandments to offer animal sacrifices, we don't because those commandments are not for us. What we're talking about is what is called the moral law. Those commandments that tell you and I how God would have us live. We find them throughout the scriptures. So that is our our focus. And I would make it very clear, if I could, that we are not saved by keeping commandments. It's not our salvation is not based on what we do, but based upon what Christ has done. We obey commandments not to be saved, but because we are saved. And a helpful scripture, I think, for us as we seek, trying to please the Lord, be pleasing in His sight, and obey His commandments as we find them, is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And I'd like to start about the middle of verse 12. You'd find as you read all of it, it's not taken out of context, I don't think, but the emphasis we'd like to make is where the verse says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God works in and we work out. God works in our hearts and in our lives to cause us to will to do his commandments, gives us a desire to do it, and gives us the power to do it. And without God working in our hearts, we are all... um, in a place of impossibility as far as keeping commandments apart from God's help. But the commandments are given to us, and although we are totally dependent upon God for help and strength and power and will, yet the commandments are given to us and we are responsible for keeping them. We are the ones who are to obey. And so we use our strength and our energies and the means that God has given, like studying the scripture and prayer and being with God's people and, and do all of these things that we might be able to do what God has commanded us to do. Our motivation for obedience springs out of a reverent awe for who he is, for gratefulness for what he's done, And for love to him who so loved us. And we know that God is all-knowing. He has infinite wisdom and knowledge. And that God is good in everything that he does. And that God loves his Christian people. Therefore, we surmise from that that every single commandment is for our good and for our benefit. And we realize that in obedience to his commandments, God is glorified, which is the great aim of the Christian. And when you really get this in your heart, then you can say with the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law. It is more to be preferred than gold. Just find gold sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And I hope you will feel that way about these commandments of God. Because we're going to look at some that's given in this passage of Scripture. There are just a few of them, and uh, hopefully the Lord will use them in our lives. The first command we would look at is found in verse 14 of our text, and it says, Strive for. That implies the exertion of energy and effort. Uh, The New American Standard translation says, Pursue which I think is a good word to help us understand what this means. Now, our family has a couple of dogs. Now, they're not mine. Our daughter's has an old dog down at her house, so it's, and my grandson has a younger pup. And um, because I walk a lot living in the country, uh, the dogs like to go with me. I'm not sure why. But anyway, they like to go. And uh, if it's any indication that I might be going for a walk, they are wagging tails, ready to go. And uh, they do pretty good. They don't get too far afield, and um, they generally obey with the farm, and they generally come when I do until there is sight, scent, or sound of a squirrel. And then they just go berserk. Uh, they are after it with every bit of effort they have. If the squirrel runs into a brush pile, which often happens, they circle it, they bark, they moan, or whatever dogs do, they dig around in the wood trying to get out of the way to get the squirrel, and if the squirrel happens to make a break for it and run for a tree, has no need. He's safe in there, but if he does, they are after it. The same thing again, around and around the tree, they go barking, they climb up like they'd climb the tree if they could, and um, I can't get them to go home, unless I grab them by the collar and drag them, what? Pursuing. Now, Christians are to pursue things. And we have to ask, what things? Well, Well, the Christian, there's a lot of things that we need to be pursuing, but there are two that are mentioned in our passage, and those are the ones that we will look at this morning. The first one is pursue peace with everyone. Now, the word everyone is a very large word. It covers, in fact, everybody, your family, your neighbor, the people you work with, people you go to church with, I mean, ev- your enemies, everybody. So we are to pursue, like those dogs, pursue peace with everybody. Now, a verse that might give some clarity to us in this is Romans eight, Romans twelve, eighteen. If possible, as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. For you see, there are some people that will and will not allow you to live at peace with them, and so. Uh, it's not going to happen regardless of what you do the point is don't let the problem be with you um but there's some but who make peace impossible also we're not talking about peace at any price it is not a it is not a call to give up your christian convictions so that you might have peace in your relationship with someone no, we can't give up our convictions. And sometimes because we can, it will cause difficulty. But my dear ones, that's just how it has to be. But other than that, we need to be working for peace without giving up our convictions, realizing we can't always have peace with everyone. And we do that by not losing our temper, not speaking harsh words, not becoming mad, uh, not being uh, unreasonable, but we're to be loving and kind and patient. And when we're in the wrong, we f- uh, confess our errors. And because of our responses, we do all that we can and pursue all that we can, and we might have peace with every single person. That is God's will for his people. We live in peace and in harmony, if possible. The second thing we are to pursue is Holiness. Now, the basic idea of holy is to be set apart or separate. In the tabernacle, which was the worship place of early Israel on their journeys, there was a a table called the table of showbread. And on that table, there were several bowls. They're not mentioned much in the scripture, but you can find them. Those bowls were made out of pure gold, but they were considered holy. They weren't considered holy because they were made of gold. But they were made but they were considered holy because they were set apart unto God. Those bowls were not to be used for any common use like putting soup in or uh whatever. No, they were not for, for use in your home. This they were used exclusively in the service of God. Therefore, because they were set apart unto him, they were holy vessels. People can be holy. And that's what we're really concerned about in this passage. Set apart from the world, set apart unto God. Now for the Christian, there are two kinds of holiness. There's what's called positional holiness. When a person comes to... God through the Lord Jesus Christ and puts their trust in him. That person, and this is a wonderful truth, that person is brought in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And being in union with him, all of our sins, which are many, are placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and he makes payment for every single one of them. Isn't that glorious? And then, not only that, but his wonderful righteousness is taken and placed upon us due due to that union with Christ, so that we stand in Christ with every single sin forgiven and standing in the righteousness of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, but we stand before God as forgiven and just and right in His sight, as holy, set apart from all others, and set apart unto God for His own special use, holy people. Now, this verse is not talking about positional holiness, obviously, because we are told to pursue holiness and you don't have to pursue your, your positional holiness because you have at the moment you're saved. And if you're a Christian, you already have the position as holy to God. That's why sometimes in the scriptures, Christian people are called saints. The word means holy ones because of the position. So we're not speaking of that. We're speaking of the second type of holiness, which is called practical holiness, that is living out in your everyday life what you are in position. Your position is you're set apart from sin and set apart unto God. That's your position. Now our practical holiness is that we live it out in the way we talk, the way we think, the way we act, uh, the attitudes that we have. We live a, a life set apart unto God. Christ-likeness is the word, and we're talking about the Holy Christ and to be like him. Now, when one becomes a Christian, he doesn't, uh, his ways do not automatic, automatically become uh, holy ways, not at all, far from it. So, what it, and this is God's way of doing this. So, what happens is that we have a changed life bit by bit, little by little. God works in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, gives us the will to want to please Him and to obey His commands, gives us power to live as we should, to overcome vices and to add Christian virtues in our life so that bit by bit we are growing, learning, developing, becoming day by day more and more a holy people. We're being, the theological term is sanctified, which literally means being made holy. And so we as Christians then are to pursue this holiness. Now, apart from God working, we're not going to be holy at all in any way. There'll be no changes in our lives. But with God working in our hearts, we are to make every effort, use all the means God has given us, do all that we can, that we might become more and more, day by day, In every aspect of our lives, we might become holy people. Well, they come now to the next command found in verse 15. It says, see to it. It is a call to be observant, to be spiritually alert, to be watchful. The New King James translation translates it, looking carefully And there's a reason, and this is what Christians are to do, to be pleasing to God, to be spiritually alert. And there's a reason for this. There are very real dangers for the Christian, and we need to be alert to those, and we need to be on our guard, lest we fall into those dangers and it be difficult for us. So, the first danger that is mentioned before us in this passage of Scripture let no one fail to obtain the grace of God and by the way as we are spiritually attentive looking out first of all for our own souls of course but this involves more than that because you'll notice as I read it let see to it that no one it involves more than just you it involves your spiritual family and that's what we are as fellow Christians We love each other. We care for each other. We want to help each other. We pray for each other. And if there is a danger, and there are, we want to make certain that these whom we love and care for, they don't fall into danger as well as our own selves. So it's a call to the church. So the first danger of the Domitian, that no one failed to obtain the grace of God. Now, It's speaking here, when it speaks of the grace of God, of ultimate salvation, of entering into heaven. And it tells us, uh, and it's speaking, this verse is speaking to professing Christians, people who are claiming to be Christians. And the passage we would need to look at is to hear the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 7, Verses 22 and 23. Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. On that day, many, and by that day, it's talking about the end of time when st- one stands before God to give an account for themselves. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we have a group of people who think they're Christians. They come to the very end of life. They stand before God in judgment. And at that point, they're still calling in the Lord. They feel he, and then they list a number of spiritual activities of which they were involved in. The resume is very good. In fact, I, I couldn't keep pace with them. They prophesied in his name, they cast out demons, they did mighty, many mighty works, and there's no denying that they did. No, there's no one saying you didn't do that. No denying at all. But yet you hear the words of our Lord. I never knew you. I never knew you. So the truth is, is that a person can claim to be a Christian and think they're a Christian and not be a Christian. And that is a serious danger. And we would gather that in a group this size, there are some here this morning who think they're Christians and claim to be Christians, but as a matter of fact, they're not Christians. What is, and the Bible, I think is clear enough in this, what it takes to be a Christian is, first of all, God's grace and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what God has done for us in Christ is to be received by faith, by believing. It is to believe the facts of the gospel, that they're true, to not only believe they're true, but to to say, Lord, I, I believe, I believe in you. I put my trust in you and what you've done for me. I'm a miserable, needful sinner. And I put my trust in you and, uh, cast my life upon you. I, I commit myself to you to be your follower. Genuine, real faith. Now, faith will. Have fruits, and this is that you would examine to see that you have genuine faith. Um perseverance to the end is one of the fruits, but there's others, and I will leave that to look for you to look for it yourself. But this is not a call for you to doubt your salvation. But it's a call as Second Corinthians thirteen five tells us. Examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? And listen, did you fail to meet the test? So we would realize it's more than just believing facts. It is putting putting our trust and our faith in the Lord Jesus. Or as James reminds us, even the demons believe, as far as a group of facts are concerned. So you need to examine your heart. Do you trust in the Lord? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? And you want to make sure that the faith that you have is a genuine and real faith. Maybe you would do like to do what I regularly try to do. I try to come before the Lord in prayer, saying, no, "Lord, I realize I am a great sinner." done terrible sins before you and I'm guilty as can be and I have no hope upon my own but I want to put my trust in the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus I believe in you I believe what the scriptures say about you I claim you as my own Lord and savior I cast my life upon you I want to serve you and follow you for the rest of my life genuine faith hopefully that's genuine faith yes because you see Faith in Christ is not something you just do at the beginning of your Christian life. It is something you do throughout your Christian life so that any time you should be able to fall on your knees and say, Lord, I am putting my trust in you. There's never a day when a Christian shouldn't do that. And so what a good exercise, I think, that we regularly do that because we want to make certain we have genuine faith. And we want to help one another and pray for one another and encourage one another. And I want to say just a word to parents, if I might. Do not assume, parents, that your children are Christians. Just because they're in your family doesn't make them a Christian. And just because they love Jesus and love to go to Sunday school and sweet kids or whatever, it doesn't make them a Christian. What you should do, what I would urge you to do, is pray for those children every single day. Call out to God. He might open their eyes that they might see clearly, that He might touch their heart and draw them to Himself. Pray for them. And then you need to make the gospel plain to these children um, so that they would understand that they are lost, that they need a Savior desperately. And as God has provided one in the Lord Jesus Christ, and show them and Teach them about putting faith and trusting Christ and casting their life upon Him and train them and and live it before them. Where you see, your children are really sensitive in this area. They can tell whether a parent is genuine or not in their faith. Just uh, doing Sunday activities won't full of child. They're watching your life. You are the greatest example that they have really in this earth. Live the Christian life before them. Talk of the Lord. Let them see you reading your Bible and on your knees in prayer. Let them uh, see you confessing your sins when you fail. Let them watch a genuine Christian live out life lived out before them. Then and just have to trust God to do the rest. And I'll tell you, God loves your children a lot more than you do. And you can rest and count on Him. But uh the, the second danger is found in verse 15. Let no root of bitterness spring up. Now it seems to me that this root is a person, a person. It's described as being bitter. We may understand that better by the word noxious. It's a noxious root or a foul-tasting root. But it's talking, about, I think, talking about a person. What kind of person would this be? Well, we need to look to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18. I think this is probably the verse that uh, our writer of Hebrews had in mind when he made this reference. There it says, beware... Lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve other gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root-bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. It is what we call an apostate, one who renounces their faith. The previous one was someone who thinks a uh, statement was someone who thinks they're a Christian, but they're not. This one deals with someone who claimed to be a Christian, but comes to a place in the life and says, "I don't believe that anymore." And they an answer. In fact, the writer of this book of Hebrews was very concerned about that because those to whom he was writing it was, had a difficult time. The Christian life is not easy. The Christian life is the way, of the cross. And some of these were facing some of those difficulties of persecution and other issues. And some of those were contemplating abandoning the Christian faith and going back to Judaism from which they came. And a writer is warning them in this book. He sets up the the greatness of the Lord Jesus as a great high priest and a captain of our faith and uh, so many things to urge us to keep our trust and sights on him. But he also warns, don't. Renounce your faith. Don't turn back some other way. And there's warnings numerous times in this book. And so uh, this warning that we have, don't become an apostate. Renounce your faith. Let me tell you the story of my cousin. He was, uh, a year younger than me, I, I think. Uh, he, we didn't have the same blood flowing in our brains, veins, but we had, we shared an aunt. So it's, it's going to be second cousin or third cousin, however that works. Uh, in any anyway, uh, he was known as a dynamic Christian young man. And even in high school, he was asked to preach in numerous churches around our town. And he was extremely effective. And when he got out of high school, he decided he would get a group, a team, to go and do preaching services. We called them revival meetings in my denomination. Biblical revivals, of course, but that's what they were called. And they would he was going to go out west to New Mexico and Arizona and out to California and do this preaching at churches, a number of churches lined up that would allow him and his team to come and uh do preaching. And uh and he asked me to pray the piano for his group. The problem is that I know one song on the piano. What a friend we have in Jesus. And I decided, I figured that after two or three days of singing What a Friend of Jesus time and time again, people would start to get tired of that. So I, I told him, I'm, I'm not going. I think he also found out about my my skills, and he didn't want me to go, actually, and found somebody who could actually do something. But anyway, they went and had a very successful time, as best I could understand. And when he came back... Uh, he went away to a very prestigious Baptist university to continue his studies uh, in pastoral ministry. He was hired on by a church there in that town and given a paid position uh, as a type of an intern. I don't think that's what they called it in those days, but that's basically what it was. We could learn and grow. Just um, rather amazing. But something happened. And I, I, I don't know what But he quit his job at the church. And he dropped out of the university. And he took up with a Buddhist woman and began to live with her. And began to smoke dope. And eventually got to the place where he said in his life, I don't believe that Christian stuff anymore. I don't believe that. It's been... Almost 60 years ago, and I'm still sad every time I think about it, and a little frightened. And our natural response to all this is, I would never do that. But dear ones, that's exactly what he would have said in his younger days. We don't know what's in our wicked hearts. Oh but if God does not hold us fast every one of us in this room could fall away so we pray oh, Lord hold me hold me Lord don't let me don't let me don't let me fall away don't let me fall away and we as a church family we just hold on to each other we hold on to each other I won't let you fall. If I can help it in anyway, I won't let you fall. By God's grace and help. The third one, verse 16, there be no sexual immortal person. Well, God created sex. I hope that's not too crude a way to save us. Uh, He's the creator of all. Therefore it's good because he's good. He created it to reproduce the species. To give pleasure for his human creatures. To provide a depth of intimacy. Therefore Sex is good, it should be enjoyed, it should be valued, and regularly we should thank God for it. But God in his great wisdom and in his great love for his people declared that sex is never to take place outside of the confines of marriage. Any any sex of any type outside of marriage is not pleasing to God and is against his will. Put it just simply enough, it's sin. Now, this is a very tough deal. I understand that because the drive is very strong. And there are temptations everywhere, everywhere. And although Christians, we still battle with our old fallen nature, which is selfish in its very heart and lustful. And apart from the Lord's help, every one of us in here could fall into sexual sin. We really could. And we probably, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, don't realize how many times God saved us from ruin by delivering us out of some situation we didn't even realize it was that bad but God's will for his people is is sexual purity in what we read what we watch what we think about and of course what we do. So this is one of those things we need pursue, although it's not one of our pursue passages. We just need to pursue what God has called for us. It takes effort. We need, we need to guard ourselves. If you go out of this world unprepared, things can happen to you. You can get in situations uh you don't before you know it. So this is why you need to. Be spiritually alert and prepared and guard yourself and be, uh, on the watch. Maybe you need a a verse that you memorize that when temptation comes, you can call it out and it will be a help to you. Maybe you need an accountability partner, someone who will speak truth to you, won't be ashamed or you won't think that, think worse of you because you tell them of your struggles. That's how we should do, shouldn't Christian friends, can't tell everybody, but have a good friend. Uh, maybe you should set some guidelines for your life. I've always admired Billy Graham, how uh, he and his team determined that they were going to watch each other and set guidelines. Like he would never be alone with a woman that's not his wife. That's one. But you set some guidelines to help you. I mean, if you're not purposeful in this area in the age in which we live, it can be trouble for you. So we pray for each other and encourage each other and try to hold each other account as best we can. Okay, the last one found in verses 16 and 17, that there be no irreligious person. The SV translates it unholy person. The New American Standard says godless person. The New King James says, profane person. Um, I use the word irreligious. Uh, seems obviously a little hard to translate. But it's somebody who lacks a sense of spiritual values. And because they don't properly value spiritual things, they don't hold them to be that important in their lives. Well, Esau is given to us as an example. You can read about him in Genesis 25 verses 29 through 34. Uh, Esau was a, an outdoorsman. He liked to hunt. He was, he was very active, but one, on one of his trips, hunting trips, he, he got extremely hungry. Maybe he got dehydrated too. I don't know, but he just became famished to the point he didn't think he was going to make it. And he came upon his brother cooking a pot of stew called red stuff. It's half referred to in the passage, which makes somebody from my state think it's probably a bowl of chili. That's what you think. Uh, in fact, where I'm from, sometimes they call it red, but... Uh, but if it has lentils in it, it's not chilly. I'll tell you that for sure. But um, anyhow, he, and he called he his brother, said, said, please give me some of this too. I'm about to start a death. I don't." And the brother said, no, I don't think so. Not unless you sell me your birthright. Birthright was a really a blessing. It was Esau's being the oldest son. And there was a great value and benefit in it. But Esau said, well, it won't do me any good if I'm dead. So he sold his birthright birthright for one bowl of stew. Evidently, he didn't think it was valuable enough to die for her. He didn't, didn't even think it was valuable enough to be hungry for her. And the writer of Genesis says, and thus Esau despised his birthright. We don't want to be of those we have a low view of spiritual things. It's quite a danger for us, living in a material world like we do, that we would set more value on our job, or on our hobby, or on uh, our house, or on our possessions, or whatever it, whatever it might be. And we devalue spiritual truths. It can happen to any of us and we begin to despise the things of God in the sense that we don't give them proper value that they should have. And I don't want that to be us in any way. Well, verse 17 tells us that Esau was really upset, eventually upset about all this when he realized what he had lost and what he had given up. He wept and he begged and But it couldn't be reversed. Well you see, sometimes, and many times, actions that you do, you can't change it. Once they're done, they're done. And there's no chain, no getting out of that. You have to just bear the consequences. Uh, Esau, as far as I can tell, from reading the old testament scripture, never repented. Now he was sorry for what happened. He was sorry for his loss. He really was. And his tears were real. What the writer of Corinthians might call a worldly sorrow. But he wasn't sorry that he despised the spiritual blessings of God. And he wasn't really sorry that he sinned against God and went his own. He wasn't sorry about that. But however you might deal with verse 17, and there's some questions here. uh, uh, I'm not sure I know the answer, but uh, let me tell you this, based upon the totality of Scripture. you, You know, you interpret the unclear Scriptures in light of the clear. It's a principle of biblical interpretation. So here's what the Bible teaches in its whole. That if Esau or you or me truly are sorrowful for our sins, realize that they are against God and we are guilty and we don't put the blame in we take responsibility. We, We bear our sin and we come before God seeking His gracious mercy and forgiveness for our sins. My friends, you will find it. You'll find it Esau would have too had he done that, and so can you. And so in passages dealing with commandments, and every one of us in here, I think, realize often again we fail and our lives are not that pleasing to the Lord, but here's some help for us. For there's grace and mercy in the Lord. One of my favorite passages is from Psalm 103, describing the Lord said, He's merciful and He's gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And as we read earlier, let's come to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And for all your failures, maybe you feel like me and I, I sin a plenty still. Find God's forgiveness. And I'm thankful for it. And then that He might stir our hearts, giving us a great desire to please Him and given us spiritual power that we might indeed live a life to do so. Now we're going to bow before the Lord for just a moment of prayer and seek Him. Uh, The the Lord may speak, be speaking to your heart this morning about some area, uh, whatever it might be, you come before our merciful God and and in humility and honesty you call upon His name and bring whatever He would have you before his face. We might pray the Lord would really stir our hearts. We might desire to please, it'll be in a way so pleasing to him. Won't you take a moment, just call upon him, look unto the Lord for just a moment together. Now, Lord God, we come. I just confessed with my dear brothers and sisters. I'm a great sinner, in need. But I, there is a great, great Savior, and I'm thankful. Just come and cast our lives upon You. To want to trust You and believe in You, and to seek to serve You, live a life that would please and honor You. Lord, forgive us our sins. Please give us strength and help and courage uh, to follow You. Help us love our one another. Help one another and look unto You. Our dear God, we pray, for. we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to Cherishing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.